0: Number 11, Psalms, First Quarter, 2024. Daniel Duda.
1: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to start Lesson 11, Longing for God in Zion in the Quarter on the Book of Psalms. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator. Our opening prayer will be by Darla.
2: Dear Father God, thank you for the privilege of meeting together on this blessed Sabbath day and to be in your presence. Please continue to teach us the many facets and wonders of who you are. Our prayer today is that we will come away from our time with you and each other, reflecting more clearly to our world, your beauty, love, kindness, and compassion. May your spirit be especially poured out on Daniel today as he leads us in our study. Oh, how we long to dwell with you in new heaven and new earth. We will be your people and you will be our God forever and ever.
3: Amen. Amen. And good morning to you and those who are in other time zones. Good afternoon or good evening. And welcome to lesson 11 for the Sabbath School quarter on Psalms. The topic for us is longing for God in Zion. And Terry, if you can read our memory text to start.
4: My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God.
3: Wow. So, how many teenagers or young adults would express this? For how many of them, this would be the reality? In the little church on the outskirts of town, there's nothing much impressive about it. Do you feel they would say, My soul longs yet, even faints for the sanctuary? I can't wait to be there. Now, of course, This was said in a certain context in Psalm 84, and we will have a look at it. But how do you feel about the memory text? How much is that
5: a reality, Henry? I think that it will depend of the environment that uh, that place will provide for me. I can be longing for a place that is safe, a place that I can feel safe and that is welcoming me. But if a place, it will be judgmental, making me look different. Where I am being finger-pointed, then I may not have the same experience that is honest.
3: Okay. Yes, definitely. Lou Wade?
6: To me, it means that every fiber and every cell in my whole being needs and wants and desires nothing more than to have that intimate relationship with my Heavenly Father. Who loves me beyond my comprehension and he's patient and his love is so great that it just is mind boggling that's all i can say
3: yeah so you separate the desire for god from the experience of the corporate worship let's go to bob ziprick could you have a situation where it's relevant especially
1: at certain times of life if someone's about to graduate at a college or university They're excited about the future right then. The underlying issue is they can love God, but they're not in a situation where they're in a crisis. But as you go through life, you hit lots of these, I think, crises. And I think people in the long run who turn to God have that as their longing. But there could be gaps in that life when you're very excited about something else, and it's not the immediate thing on your mind. All right.
3: Thank you. John Robson?
7: I think it's quite amazing that the psalmist has this view of God at the time that he's
3: writing this without the benefit of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you take into consideration where we are in the Bible story and what has been revealed and what he has to look back to, and uh, what he doesn't know yet, what is to come later, that's amazing. Yes. Who was the author of the psalm? If you look at the heading of Psalm eighty-four, and while I look at
8: it, let's go to Livius. Yeah, I was going to ask how old David was when he wrote this, but it wasn't. It says a psalm of the sons of Korah. What was the job
3: of the sons of Korah? And that's a question for everybody, not just Livius.
8: While they're thinking this verse, this section, it kind of reminds me of the struggle we have between two natures. You know, we have God's character, we were created in his image. And then we also have the fleshly side, the human nature, human nature. And I wonder if the psalmist here, this is why I was asking about how old the individual was when he wrote this, or they wrote this, is that there must have been a contrast between characters and must have maybe recognized and realized God's character. And this is a desired expression of wanting to be like God. He's looking at the world around him and realizing that that's not the kind of character he wants. So he's desiring, he's desiring the idea of Christ in us, the hope of glory, if you will.
3: Okay, thank you. So... Anybody else regarding the sons of Korahites, who are there and what is their job, if you recall? They are in charge of temple worship during the time of David and Solomon. So it's good to see that some people enjoy going to the place of worship or the place of work, because some people are stuck in that end job and they can't wait for the end of the work time and go home and be elsewhere. But it's certainly nice to see that somebody enjoyed their work their job and they see it as a part of their spiritual experience but as xerox company says on the billboard experience cannot be copied your experience with your work is your own experience and in some sense we all need a level of corporate experience not only the individual experience of worship Most people, when they read the psalm, they think about me and my sweet Jesus, which is my private experience with God. And however important that is, it's not the whole picture how God shapes you and your spirituality. So there is something that God can do in the individual, in your closet, in your room with Him. There is something that you need the corporate dimension of worship for the shaping. Sean?
9: Yes, thank you, and good morning, good day, happy Sabbath. In the question of longing, I'm reminded of Psalm 137 with respect to the background that I do not have, frankly, and I thank God that I have not been in such deep despair or have had my life in the context that would have placed within my very fibers this juxtaposition of my nature and who i am and the context where i find myself and or the longing that i would have in that context grown up with as parents who have had this terrible experience of being captives of another nation having had all of these difficulties sorting out god's directions as i travel from one place to the next and this innate interest to Come to a place just as a human being of relative security, let alone as a human being within a nation that has been called to represent who God is among those that you are captives of and among those that you travel through. So, not having that background, which has already been spoken of here, but I wanted to detail in my own life that the context, I'm absent of any of that context. My life has been very secure. So, When I sit down by the rivers of Babylon in my own life, it is far different than the struggle of having that group of people, that nationhood, called of God, sitting down by the rivers of Babylon, longing to be in Zion. So I just want to emphasize that my life being pretty easy does not come with that context. And I can only, through the very small bumps in the road that I've had in my life. I can only imagine that longing and, as it were, that missing the calling time and time and time again. And for those who, among that group, would take their call of God seriously, it must have been a horrible trauma for them, which would exemplify that longing for Zion. Thank you.
3: Okay. And that shows you that you cannot start with a question when reading the Bible, what does it say to me? You start with the original context. So the text, and in this context, Psalm, Psalm 84, has a certain context. It was said in a certain context between an individual and its individual's word to the Lord. And now how does that word to the Lord becomes the word from the Lord to me in a completely different context? There is a certain process. And if you are not aware of that process, you are going to misapply that portion of the scripture and then something that was inspired instead of ending a tool of blessing becomes a tool of misunderstanding and a crisis of faith for you for other people and it's completely unnecessary it's just because we are not aware of the dynamics of what's going on and so this is important when we have the quarter on psalms to ask the question how does the word of the psalmist spoken by the hymn writer in 1000 P.C. in Judean Desert, to the Lord, become the word from the Lord to me in 21st century, where it's California, England, Norway, Austria, or wherever people are listening to this. Let's go to Darla.
2: I really agree with Sean in that aspect of how those of us that are Americans have not suffered persecution or the cost for being a Christian sometimes. But I wanted to relate how I read an article recently about how Americans are so independent. And so then we have that feeling that maybe we don't need community. We don't need church. Well, so where we live now, the church we've gone to for 39 years has dwindled down to nothing. And so we do online. We meet with a few people in our home. But I tell you what, we went down an hour and a half to the next church. And I just got tears in my eyes to meet with a community of people. It's a blessing. And part of that is don't forsake assembling together so that you encourage one another until that day. And I think sometimes we think we can just do it on our own. And I think there's something about being restored as a community that some of us just don't understand until we don't have that community.
3: Thank you. Yes, so there are certain things you can't experience alone or you can't experience on Zoom. And so that dimension is also important in how God shapes us and our spirituality, our relationship with Him. Jane?
10: Back at home, I had the privilege of living in a compound where we had the church itself within our compound. And good, it's now it makes sense to me that it was very important for me that time that there was a door where I could go at any time into that church personally and just pray to God. And that really meant so much for me because when I came here to the U.S. in 21, this is something I really, really longed for because here, unless the doors are opened, there will be no way I'll be able to go to church until someone opens the doors for you. So it really meant a lot for me. And of course, until today, and I hear this psalm, and like it's replaying in my mind how we imagine some things are small, but Personally, it has really made such a big deal for me that at some point in life, I was able to access the sanctuary and being able to pray personally and also be able to relate with others. And the COVID season came when no one was coming to church anymore. And we were like bundled up again in our houses to worship just with our families only. So this experience for me has been a journey. And I'm glad that this year I want to share this experience because this year in May, I just decided because I stay in Loma Linda, I say the courts of the Lord are as holy as inside the church. So I found a little space where I'm able to go outside, not inside. but just outside and be still able to pray to my God. So this psalm means a lot to me. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Jane. It's interesting that even an individual prayer in the sanctuary, quote unquote, the temple has this impact on you and on some people. And that is not even an experience of corporate worship, but an individual worship just in the place. Good. Thank you, Julie.
11: At the beginning, you mentioned something about teenagers maybe not having this experience so much. And I would say that probably the one time I think I really had this experience was between the ages of 11 and 14 when I was at a small, little, tiny, small church in Southern California where I grew up. And we had some pretty amazing, young, new believer Sabbath school teachers. And we had that experience there of not only being part of a corporate group that was involved in learning about God and worshiping in Sabbath school, but also really having more experiences with God myself. And it was very powerful. And many times since for some reason, this particular text about longing for the courts of God has always popped out for me because it seems so kind of ludicrous, you know? When I think about that, oh, I wish I could have that experience again. And I think about the people of Israel. I believe this was one of the Psalms that they would sing as they approached Jerusalem on their journeys there for the three times of year when they were supposed to go for the feast. I could be wrong, but I think that's one of them. And at those times, I imagine they probably really did have that experience that, wow, we now not only get to come together, but we get this incredible experience with God. I've also had the thought, Recently, maybe the reason that I don't always run into the same experience now is there's a text we all know very well where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And for the Israelite people, that Jerusalem was a major treasure for them, the temple, it was actually very representative of who they were as a people, of their corporate group, as a large group. It was their family. And I think sometimes in our independent society and in our scattered way of thinking about things, we don't have a center of our treasure many times. We kind of have treasures scattered all over. But I think that's a gift that God still wants to bring to us, that sense of having that treasure. Although now it's not centered in one place, as Jesus said, you will worship in spirit and truth. I believe the corporate and spiritual experience with God can occur all of the time, in a sense, where we are right now, not only in a church setting, but also when we are interacting with other believers and with God in our natural context.
3: All right. Thank you. So if you look under number two, is there anything that you are longing for? Sometimes we could replace longing with thirsting. Bible uses often thirst as a metaphor for our desires. Do you sometimes feel like fainting from the intensity of your longing, your desire? And then how do we apply it when we read this for our lives? So how do we, if you look under number three, practice the presence of God? in our busy lives of 21st century, because he's longing for that presence of God. And as Julie mentioned, they are required to go three times per year, by the way, when there was the greatest amount of work. So God doesn't call them during the cucumber season when there is nothing to do, but they have to go when they have the most work. And so they need to plan and they need to depend on him. They need to plan their harvest around this in such a way so that they can manage their work and their worship and they need to depend on him that time of going to jerusalem is not a wasted and lost time and you can understand how in certain period for the nation this also is an experience that brings them together as a nation the 12 tribes and the people who live miles away Remember, travel in those days is not as easy as now. They just don't jump into a car and on a freeway or motorway, they are there in one, two hours. So it creates a unifying experience for these individuals, for families, for tribes, and they consider and they see themselves as a nation. So it all plays a role in that. But yeah, I can remember my father being a pastor and transferred to a different part of the country, one that spoke another language. And here I was stuck in the church, didn't understand a word. Sermons in those days were 90 minutes plus. And I would say, Mom, when will be the end? I want to go home. She said, soon, Danny, soon. And I would say, Mom, you said 20 minutes ago soon, but we are still stuck here. So Psalm 84 2 certainly wasn't on my mind. And did not express the sentiments I felt as a six or 10 year old boy. But you can see the context. How do we find time for God and make space for Him?
6: For me, it has to be at the very start of my day that I spend quiet time. I like the thought that I've come to about connecting my heart to God's heart and His heart to my heart and filling me with the Holy Spirit. And that's the only way for me. To have peace and love and joy throughout, no matter what my circumstances are.
3: Good, good. Thank you. And are you a lark or are you an owl?
6: Oh, I'm a lark
3: okay and that explains why you need it at the beginning of your day
6: yes i am i do
3: and you can understand that someone might not have the same
6: oh yeah oh,
3: references yeah.
6: we should never judge anybody else for their method their way or anything else i'm just saying from my own perspective that's how it works for me
3: yeah as americans say you don't argue with success if something <laughs> works for you then <laughs> it works for you. Yeah.
12: Yeah.
3: I have heard preachers say that if you don't do it early in the morning, then the devil is on the tune and the station. And as I said, you don't argue with success. If something puts you in touch with God, don't allow anyone's subconscious preferences blackmail you into something which is not you. So how do you create a relationship with God that is you, that works for you? Karen.
13: Yes, when I was a teenager, someone gave me a book by Brother Lawrence about practicing the presence of God. And he was like a monk in the Middle Ages. And the more modern version you read of it, the better, really. But I was really struck by him. And he said, I'm a monk, but every time it's time to pray, I really struggle to focus on God. And so he decided that he would just think about God, whatever he was doing in his life, just remember God was with him um, through his mistakes, through his ups and downs and to experience his love. And that really struck a chord with me. And I just remember that his love is around me all the time and just tune into it. His presence is there. And I can just bring my mind to that any time and just remember that he loves me. I know that God loves everybody, but In one way, it's like the little snowman in Frozen who gets his own personal snow flurry. And I just feel like we can imagine that there is a little flurry of love over each person that God is loving us. And it's there whether we tune into it or not. And then we remember it's there, then we can experience that, whatever's happening, really.
3: Yes, thank you. So there is a value in structure of your day. And this is something that people in the monasteries experience. And the more work you have, the more you realize how a structure brings order and you can put more things into the day than if you are not structured. But uh, yes, it's important to notice that even a monk in 17th century can struggle with experiencing the presence of God in the very environment which is supposed to be conducive to that in a monastery, in a Carmelite monastery in Paris. So thank you. Excellent. Let's go to Rusty.
8: I had really left the Lord out of my life for about three years. My son had died and had a very emotional need for God, but not really knowing how to make that happen. And I remember I started studying the Psalms and I was reading it. I got to Psalm 63, and that's the first one that really impacted me. And here's David. He feels like his life is like a wilderness and yet he's longing for the courts of God. And I just could not relate. And I just said, God, if you can do that for me, you can put that long in my heart. I'm willing. I just have no idea what that would be like. And, you know, God really did that for me. And like Sean was sharing before, you know, I just couldn't relate to that and I couldn't either, but it just really changed the way I related to God and it became very much more personal and, was a change of my life for sure it was like my whole trajectory my life changed at psalm 63.
3: okay thank you and we are talking about 84 and it's not by david but it still applies one of the reasons why we have it as a part of the collection of psalms is because the community of believers came to the conclusion that this represents more than the individual experience but that it's inspired, and all of us can be blessed by that. And this is definitely one of those psalms that is an experiential psalm. And can you say a day in your courts is better than a thousand days elsewhere? Now, probably you have a place that you enjoy more than other places, but it shows the experience. The psalmist says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than live in the tents of wickedness. What about the verse 11 and 12? For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. Do you have any experience with that text? doesn't say that the Lord is going to give you everything you want, everything that you think you ought to have, that God is going to satisfy all your ambitions. Can you testify to the truthfulness of that text in your experience? Nancy?
14: I can testify. In my life, I had a huge change just about the time of the pandemic. I'd had about four years now with my husband being hit with Parkinson's. My life had changed and the sorrows and all our plans for retirement just went out the window. And I was hospitalized with a bowel that had ruptured. And here I am in a new situation, almost had died. And I'm now in a community, a retirement-type community, where I can get help if I need it. And we have to sell a home. My husband isn't capable of running things anymore. And I thought, I really want to go home to heaven, or I want the new earth. There we'll have our life together. Everything's broken around me. And it's turned out I have a community here. We're independent, but there's classes, and I can continue with my love of art, which I never could before. But I've never heard of a place where I live right now, never. And here I am. And I wanted a little retirement cottage and and maybe travel a little bit. And it's like, well, now I live in an RV in a very small place. And so I imagine I'm traveling and I'm parked here temporarily and we're traveling through the universe and I'm going home. We're going to get a new earth here and there I'll get my cottage. But in the meantime, God's giving me opportunity to learn. And then there's Zoom now, where I can come and listen to all of you wonderful people and your experiences with God and talk clearly about His character. You can't do that everywhere. And it's still refreshing. And so He's coming through. God's coming through for me with learning experiences and new friends, too, in situations I never imagined because my life took a huge turn. And he's still with me. I like the little snowflakes, like Karen mentioned, that his love is around me, even though I'm in a whole new place. I never postulated. So I'm thankful for his guidance and care.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Amazing. Terry?
14: My focus on your question
4: is about God shielding us. And what happened that made me really realize that was... After I had left that horrible marriage that I was in and so many things had happened to me, I was very unsettled and unstable and it took a long time to recover and heal from that. But during that process, I became aware of once I regained a little bit of stability and I was able to think critically and In reality of it, then something would become revealed to me. And I would need to spend some time and process that and work it through and understand and recognize God's leading and care for me. And once I process that, then something else would be revealed to me. And I thought, God, you're so nice. You're so kind. And I realized that he wasn't overwhelming me with all of the revelation of the things that I had been through that I wasn't able to recognize at the time. And I thought, you're just feeding it to me a little bit until I can process it and have the strength to take on more. And then you give me the next thing. And I just thought that was so nice of God.
3: Yes, the fact that he doesn't overwhelm us and that the journey is a step-by-step experience with gradual increase and ascending tendency yes it's interesting psalm 84 is not one of those songs of ascent but we have four psalms in this lesson but a number of them are from the Collection 120 to 134, which are the Songs of Ascent. And we'll go there next. Let's go to Michael.
5: Yeah, I don't want to throw cold water on this, but there are people who have suffered just unbelievable tragedies. And I think of the Shoah, the Holocaust, six million of God's chosen people. I wonder how many of them had this psalm in mind, that they were being led to the gas chambers. I think there needs to be a balance between reality and faith. I don't know that any of them ever were forsaken by God, but they were certainly tried.
3: Yes. And how many of them quoted Psalm 90, a thousand of them will fall on your right hand and 10,000 on your left hand, but it will not approach you, it will not come close to you. And it was not, did not materialize in their own experience. And that's why. The psalms are the individual experience of a psalmist and back to Xerox company. Experience cannot be copied. And we are going to say before we finish the lesson about the Zion that is invincible, that cannot move and how it fell down and it moved and it was not true. And no amount of quoting is going to change that. My wife and I had Psalm 84, verse 12, we had on our wedding announcement as the text. Now, 40 years later, I can testify that certainly many good things have come along into our lives. And I would not have imagined them 40 years ago. Does it mean that everything happened that I expected or that all the wishes have been granted? No. Back to what you mentioned, let's be realistic. Let's have a reality check. And sometimes it speaks more about our expectations than it speaks about God, but it needs to be processed in a mature way. Otherwise, Psalms can be, as we said before, a great source of misunderstanding, even a crisis of faith. When you take the word of the Psalmist to God in a completely different context as the word of God to you in your particular context today, And uh, the problem is not with God. The problem is in an immature way how we applied it. So that's a very important aspect of reading the book of Psalms. Johannes Brahms, the German composer, and his German requiem, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts? You will get a different perspective on this psalm, if you love classical music, of course. But you can imagine that somebody is singing a song How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, indeed, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh, sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, happy are those who live in your house, ever singing your praise and a day in your courts is better than a thousand days elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I would love this experience to continue indefinitely for 1,000 days, but the reality of life is that the next day you are from up there to down here. And we have Psalms that reflect that as well, and that's important, that context. Aaron,
15: You don't know what path your life is going to take, but if you trust God, it's way better than trying to go through life without trusting God. And I've seen his providence literally saving my life different times and also just giving me purpose and hope and meeting the soul need that I have. I love Ellen White's comment on, I think it might be from that psalm, that no good thing will God withhold from them that walk uprightly. And the way she interprets that is that nothing that in any way concerns our peace is too small for him to notice. And so no matter what situation we're in, God does promise us peace. And like Nancy said, we might not get the cottage here on earth, but there is one coming.
3: Thank you. Let's move on. So that was lesson for Sunday. And you can see... The value, this is a classical example how inspired word from 1000 BC speaks to people today and if we had enough time, I could go one by one and ask you, what's your experience with the truth expressed in Psalm 84 and uh, we would be here a long time. Time to move on, Psalm 122 and let's read first five verses, Psalm 122. Another psalm connected with Zion. And now we are moving to, if you look under number four, these are the Psalms 120 to 134. They are the Psalms of Ascent. So these are the Psalms that the Jewish pilgrims are singing as they ascend, go up to Jerusalem. Because if you've ever been in Palestine, you know that Jerusalem is on a hill. And so from all sides, you ascend to Jerusalem.
4: I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. To it the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there the thrones for judgment were set up, the thrones of the house of David.
3: Okay, so as they go to Jerusalem three times per year during the three great feasts, the judicial cases will be, some difficult cases will be resolved there. So the things that they could not handle in their little village They could bring to the judges there in Jerusalem. And so that was the time to resolve there. What do they pray for? Verses 6 to 9.
4: Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For the sake of my relatives and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good.
3: All right. So... I quoted Johannes Brahms for the previous psalm. Now, those of you who are in the United Kingdom, you know that this psalm was put to music and great choral singing for the coronation of Edward VII in 1902 and then revised for George V coronation in 1911. And since then, it's part of every royal coronation, just a musical, majestic rendering of I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Once again, how many teenagers, how many young adults, when they think of their local church, are saying, I know no greater joy than saying to me, let's go to that church. That's where the source of joy flows into our hearts. And what is it that we can do to at least make it a part of reality? Because as I told you, for some reasons, I did not always enjoy going to a local church for various objective reasons. And if the younger generation doesn't see value in the corporate worship, in the world in which we live, after a certain age, you can't command things, and what they don't see added value, they are not going to identify with. And long-term, we are going to reap the consequences.
2: Darla? If this was three times a year, and I'm thinking about something special in my life, and now in the lives of my grandchildren, And I remember going to camp meeting. It was just an experience, camp meeting, for the kids, for the adults. It was very encouraging. And then my grandchildren love going to summer camp. And I know that they do a good job of turning kids to the spiritual aspect. And that sanctuary is in an outdoor amphitheater with logs and trees and a lake beside it. And I think those, in a sense, are like that experience. I imagine Jesus and his parents went up to Jerusalem and then they lost him on the way back. They didn't even realize he wasn't with them because I'm sure the kids were all hanging out. So I just think how sometimes those things, which now tend to want to fade away, but those things we can hang on to that serve that purpose.
3: Yes. And this reflects the North American religious landscape. So you have the frontier. In the old continent, you have the parsonage. We are here, a village around the church and the church is the center of religious life. And that's where the priest takes care of our spiritual needs. But you have the frontier mentality that you are gaining new territory and you live on your own most of the time, separated from other people and the nearest house can be miles away. And so to make sure that you don't go completely wild and that you have some spiritual experience, what is going to bring you that spiritual experience in? Eighteen nineteenth 19th century America, it's that camp meeting that once a year we get you all together and let's spend one week on spiritual things. And it has its value. It has been transferred to other parts of the world. And people can testify what a week of going away can mean. And I'm always impressed that people spend their money instead of going to a beach holiday. And, you know, they are there in the 10th, 6.30 for my Bible study hour. And I can't believe my eyes that the level of commitment and the spiritual experience that it brings to people. So it's definitely something that has worked for many, or did not work. Some people might, listening around the globe, have a hard time to relate to what are you talking about. But imagine that for the Feast of the Weeks or the Tabernacles, God invites them for a camporee out of their houses to live in tents, you know, a scout-slash-pathfinder experience, so that they remember that they did not always live in stable structures, houses, but they were pilgrims on the way to the Promised Land. And for a week, they live in these tabernacles, in these structures that they built from branches. And it meant something for the children. Remember that camping trip? How exciting and memorable that was. The first time I saw my wife was as an eight-year-old girl in a camping trip. That was organized for the youth group. And I sometimes remind her, seeing her as an eight or nine-year-old girl, of course, had no clue. But we still remember the songs and the experiences. Can't say I remember any of the sermons, but it certainly had an impact on me.
9: Sean. It's come up repeatedly here, so I'll address it a little bit more fully. I don't want it to be too much of an aside here, but the theme of the younger generation and the interest that we have in them, of course, and the thought of maturing and the maturing process with God over time. My question comes as we're asked, what is it that in these psalms, the psalm of ascent, that they are praying for? And as I examine and have read those, I have picked out several of these principles or these points of interest. And peace is a major one, mercy, happiness, unity, dwelling in God's presence. So I want to ask a stiff question because I don't recognize those interests in some of the younger generation that I am associated with. So the stiff question is, did the young people traveling with the Israelites way back have an interest in some of the same goals that mom and dad had? And does the generation today have those same interests? Does the generation today long for peace, mercy, happiness, joy, and some of these more mature expectations that we might overlay onto the younger generation
3: in one sense you can't compare the two generations so the generation and if you look under number six We are going to talk in a little while about this represents a particular moment of the salvation history or history of Israel. So in the times of Samuel, they certainly did not walk to Jerusalem. And after the Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, they didn't have this experience. And you remember in times of Josiah, they don't even know they are supposed to remember Passover, the coming out of Egypt. The whole generation, the whole nation doesn't even know they are supposed to celebrate 4th of July, you know, as the great founding and independence of us as a nation because they somehow forgot that. So what the younger generation experienced and how they thought about that times of David or Solomon or in times of Abraham who will command his household to do certain things and not to do. It's not directly transferable to the family situation of people in the first world where a number of listeners to the Sabbath school live, you know. However, the question is, how do we think out of the box so that, as Karen put it there, so that the concerns for peace, and you mentioned it, Sean, as well, and well-being and joy, is a meaningful experience. And they see the context that, yes, this dimension of their life is important, and it provides something I cannot find elsewhere, in a local school, in a local group, a gang. Which gives you a strong sense of identity to these displaced children because suddenly they are somebody. They have their role in the order of the things, etc. So why is it that so many people join the gangs nowadays? And they provide something for their identity and their experience. And in certain parts of the world or places, that can be a disturbing experience. And so many young people die because of these associations. And how do we provide that experience as uh, Alternative to what is out there, Aaron.
15: Young people don't just want to go to church and go through the motions. They want answers for life, and I think that Christianity provides meaning and answers for life, and also the promise of future answers to come.
3: Yes, and when we say Christianity provides, it does not provide automatically or magically. It needs to be tailored to the individual needs, the way you are wired. So introverts will experience certain things differently than extroverts. How often we provide them only for extroverts, not the introverts. They should take care of themselves. And melancholics and cholerics and different types of learning, etc., etc. So it's an invitation to us to think, how is it that religion can be that meaningful? And so this psalms of ascent is an invitation not only to think mindlessly Something from the hymnal that was delivered from the previous generations from centuries ago, but to go on the journey of exploration and not be afraid to come up with something that was not used 50, 100, 500 years ago. Because when they go to Jerusalem, they come up with songs that they did not use when they went to Gilgal in Joshua's time or Shiloh in Samuel's time. And so if they can come up with new songs of ascent, To make the journey to the worship center meaningful, can you in 21st century Europe, California, Australia, come up with new ways of making the church experience meaningful for the whole family, for the little ones? Karen should say amen for the children's department. I still remember the first time the children's story was told when a brother from the division or the GC came and told the children's story and how we behind the Iron Curtain were spellbound that, oh, somebody thought about children in the context of worship. I mean, until then, their job was to sit quietly and not to disturb. And somebody here told the story for them so that they have a blessed experience as a part of the worship. Because as I told you, parts of the worship were either in a foreign language that I couldn't understand a word or were completely irrelevant. When I heard the sermon about Seven Hills in Palestine, I said, mom, I don't care what kind of hills they have in Palestine. Couldn't care less. Why should I listen for 90 minutes about seven hills in Palestine? Michael.
5: It's extremely difficult to judge our own contemporary times. It's the most impossible task. And every generation worries about the young people. They're doing this wrong, and they're doing that wrong, and they don't appreciate this, and they don't appreciate that. And I'm a student of history. I love history. And in the early 1940s, the end of the 1930s and into the 1940s, they worried about the children then and they were terrible and they were lost and so forth. But that's the same group of young people who also, during the Second World War, saved the world from absolute tyranny. So it's not hopeless. This hand-wringing is not really fruitful. There is no question that they have their commitment
3: and their experience of religion is not the experience of some other generations, but definitely they are as committed as any other. All right, let's go to verse 6. Now, if you have ever been to Israel, if you have ever been to Jerusalem, you would know the market with T-shirts and poetry and pottery and whatever that has in English that sells. But even Hebrew, sometimes even in Arabic. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Verse 6. Why are we supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? So have you seen the bands of pilgrims with t-shirts pray for the peace of Jerusalem on their journey to the Holy Land? Why is that significant, Liz?
0: I just noticed that the author of this psalm pointed in verse 8 and 9 that it was for my brethren and my companions that he was praying for peace and for the sake of the house of the Lord. So for church, he was seeking good and it was a less self-centered approach. And it reminded me of all the times that Graham used to say, are we as concerned about God's reputation as ours? And that other-centered approach, it just leapt out at me as I read them.
3: Yeah, thank you very much. So if you listen to the prayers in the context of worship, how much of them are, and bless the grandma and deal with this problem of mine and make sure that everything goes well in my life, How many prayers, even in the context of worship, are me praying and somebody else listening to an individual prayer rather than having a corporate prayer? Remember, when you pray in the context of worship experience, you are not praying yourself. You are expressing the sentiments of a congregation so that the rest of us can say, amen. If I had to express what I feel, that would be what I would say. That's the expression of how we feel as a congregation. John Stodd, a famous English theologian, was born in the same year as Graham Maxwell, used to tell the story how he went on a holiday somewhere in English countryside. And on Sunday, he decided to visit a local Anglican church. And as he entered, he discovered that the pastor was on holiday. So a layperson was taking the worship and then came the time for the pastoral or corporate prayer. And he said, and they prayed for the pastor on the holiday. said, that's good. It's good to pray for the pastors. Then they prayed for themselves as a local church. that They are blessed. And that was the end of the prayer. And John Stott said, here it was a small church praying to a small God. And I often remember that story. That's when I listen to some of the corporate prayers, mm, okay, small church mentality, praying to a small God. They are not even aware that there is a world outside of the walls of this church, that we are in a context of the world situation, that something happened this week beyond the borders of our parish or our little church. While we are enjoying our Sabbath blessings, somebody needs to evacuate because of the fires and their home is destroyed and they are certainly not praying how wonderful is your name and how I enjoy your presence because they are running away. People are going through a difficult experience. And so how do we broaden this? What do we mean when we say pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the shalom, for the flourishing, for the well-being? Because, yes, when you and I are meeting to discuss the Sabbath school, somewhere around the world there is a war and people cannot meet and they can only shoot an individual prayer for a peace so that hopefully in due time they can meet and have a corporate experience of worship or study of the word, etc., etc. And so a psalm like 122 is important for our context to see how do we create an experience? Because once they build the temple in Jerusalem, which was not part of all history of Israel they come up with a new way of making that journey meaningful. And that's what we need to do again and again in every new generation. God does not have grandchildren, and so every generation needs to make it applicable, relevant, meaningful for their own generation.
9: Sean? Yes, the psalm writer concludes with a real strong appeal to me. Verse 9 concludes, I will seek your good. I think that commitment is part of the answer to the question that you've asked how we mature and better the community by my commitment to seeking their good that's a tough task that's a mature task and it speaks to me very greatly and as henry also put in the chat the text through your
3: seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed so are we concerned about other nations about others or are just happy about what's going on in our corner of the world and not concerned. One of the disadvantages of living in a global village is that whatever happened around the world yesterday, you are exposed to it. 100 years ago, you only knew what happened in your little village, in your little town. And that's whether it was good or bad, you were only exposed to that. But in today's world, if something significant happens anywhere on this planet, within few minutes in the headlines, you are exposed to it. You know about it the bad things that are happening. And that creates a certain mentality. that, In order to survive, you need to desensitize and cut it off. Otherwise, remember during the pandemic when people said, I can't watch the news because it makes me depressed. So how I am aware about all the nations being blessed and my contribution to that. please.
0: I think one of the blessings of being an Adventist and particularly being a participant in Pine is our understanding of the great controversy. And it gives us our place in the grand scheme of things, and it provides a paradigm shift for us to move out of a me-centered world into realizing that really the issue is about God and When I make that paradigm shift from worrying about my own ticket to heaven to vindicating God and his reputation in the great controversy, it leads me to wanting other people's good. It leads me to seeing that I need to be concerned about the reputation of the church and It gives me grounding to be able to be more other-centered, I think, than if we're so concerned and focused on our own salvation and our own ticket to heaven. It's such a me-centered world, and the Bible revolves around me instead of the Bible revolving around God, where it needs to be. And I think that if we have that great controversy model, then it isn't hard to pray for peace for our brethren. It's not hard to understand that it's the church body that needs to be built up and encouraged. So I just am thankful, so thankful, for a great controversy model.
3: Thank you. And as I put in the chat, it gives you a different perspective on the prosperity gospel, that Lord, make sure that I am blessed. Now, one more thing regarding the Songs of Ascent. So there are 15 Psalms, 120 to 134. Pilgrim songs, four of them come from David, 122, 124, 131, and 133. One is from Solomon, 127, and 10 are anonymous. Let's read the first words of Psalm 126.
4: When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream.
3: And let's read till 4.
4: Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev.
3: Okay, listening to these words, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, it seemed to us like a dream. It was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we certainly rejoice. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the water on the desert sand. What would you say is the, as Germans say, the sits in Leben? What is the original context for this? Do you think that during the time of Solomon, are they singing about this? In what historical context would you sing Say things when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. The surrounding nations said, wow, we are impressed about the great things that their God has done for them. You think that the pinnacle of the history of Israel and the consecration of the temple under Solomon, they have been singing verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, so that your blessings fall on us like the dew on the desert surrounding Sinai? Or was this written in a different context when they feel this is the expression of their immediate need? Yes, Darla?
2: So in the Message Bible, starting in verse 4, And now God do it again, bring rains to our drought-stricken lives. To those who plant their crops in despair will shout yes at the harvest. To those who went off with heavy hearts, come home laughing and armloads of blessing. The feeling I got was that this was actually a spiritual thing. Renew our spiritual lives. Sometimes when God allows all these blessings after they came home from Babylon, Zion restored, then we become complacent. And now the realization comes, my heart is drought stricken and I need God to pour his reign of his spirit upon our lives. Israel went through this again and again, where they would have come to a very good spiritual place and then they would just fall off the cliff with the next bad king and on and on. I don't think we're any different in many ways. So in a spiritual way, we need to have that reign of God's spirit and his presence in our lives every day and not be complacent.
3: Yes, definitely. Thank you for a nice application. I noticed few words which you mentioned when they came from Babylonian exile. Yes, the context seems very much in the context of Babylonian exile, which means that then Psalm 126 was not sung during the time of Solomon or David when they go to Jerusalem. But that this Psalms are shaped by the experience and put together as a collection to express certain things, but they do not necessarily reflect a particular historical situation. And I think this biblical theology, this antecedent reading, reading in light of what precedes, is very important, again, to give you a balanced and mature theology of reading the Bible. Otherwise, plain reading of the Bible is going to damage your
5: spiritual experience. Michael? Seems to me, talking about the return from Babylon, the desert, getting water and so forth. Wow, after two centuries, we're free. They must have been rejoicing about that.
3: Theoretically, it could apply to Exodus, but most people would say, no, this reflects the return from Babylonian exile. And it's in the context of restoration of the Garden of Eden that God is going to do things as the prophets prophesy that will bring back the lost Garden of Eden. Iris?
7: And I think that's where exactly the relevance could be in applying it to other situations of loss and utter destruction of dreams of a reality that once has been. This can happen through disease, through life circumstances that shatter the way, the blessedness that we have once had. And when and we look back to what we have lost, And I think it's an invitation here to say to God, despite the destroyed Jerusalem that I see here, despite this pile of blocks that are nothing, I believe that you can restore my life. And as Nancy mentioned earlier today, it may look very differently to what she thought or we thought it should look like. But it's at the same time an expression of faith and an invitation for God to act in our lives, to restore to some degree and use even the ruins of our life to bring honor and glory, to reveal himself again in our life and to show other people that he is still God and triumphing over whatever the enemy has shot at us, to shoot us down, to bring us down, to bring us to the pit of despair. And this is an invitation. God, come into this, into these ruins and rebuild that which seemingly is lost forever and thereby reveal your beauty, your magnitude, your power in my life so that others may know that you are God.
3: Yes, so as David Thompson put in the chat, it seems that it was written during the time of Ezra, when they are allowed and encouraged to return back to Israel. And you can see the sense of disbelief in the Psalms, that imperial powers of the day carried people into the captivity. They had power over Israelites for centuries, for a long period of time. And whatever is left of the nation now can be restored, sent home again, getting its own capital. We will be able to build the temple and worship there again. It must be a dream. No, we are awake. This is really happening. And that's the mood. And of course, you put it to music and you sing it. And it's a mighty invitation to worship and to see God mighty acts in history in our own lives today. But they certainly didn't sing the psalm when they went to Gilgal or Shiloh in the time of Joshua or Samuel. And so it helps you to put the context on what's going on here. Julie?
11: I think it probably is pretty clearly the time of Ezra and after the Babylonian captivity. However, I'm thinking that the spiritual situation in Israel was even more barren, I think, before the exile, because people had completely lost sight of any experience with God. There was so much idolatry and so many other things that were distracting everybody, that in order for them to get to the point where they could rejoice to come back, They had to go through this really terrible experience in this captivity. Technically, there were a couple of little times, I think, with Hezekiah and Josiah, where there was a brief return to the feasts and to coming back to God, which people did experience positively, but it didn't make a long-term change. And eventually, I think this captivity had to happen, which I think puts some light on maybe some of the negative experiences happen to us as a church corporately sometimes, so that we can actually return to this joyful experience of coming back and seeing that God has restored us and that the world sees that He has restored us.
3: Thank you. Amazing. And so this is where the Psalms of lament come and the corporate repentance. When was the last time you heard a Psalm or prayer of corporate repentance in the context of corporate worship? That Lord, we didn't get everything right. Lord, we have hurt, harmed people in our midst. You don't get that in the remnant church. You only get triumphalism. Everything is great and wonderful. And there is time to reflect this. And that's why the corporate repentance is also a part of corporate experience. And the Israelites have one day a year, the Day of Atonement, where they are to humble their souls and to acknowledge we didn't get everything right as a community. Now, probably you don't get that if you ever in a local church experience that people come with a confession and repentance and saying, it's not only my individual failings and shortcomings, things we have done and left undone, that make this world a worse place, but it's also a corporate failure. And psalms are an invitation to see that dimension too. Rita?
12: It's just struck me that the way that this psalm is written, it starts back in the past tense, if you like, using when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion. And they're singing it now, if you like, but they're associating themselves... With those captives. They are living the history. And I think that's something that we tend not to do. We don't associate ourselves with things past, the good things or the bad things about our ancestors, but they are part of us. It's all part of what makes us who we are now. And I think it is perhaps important that we should do that and say, When they came back, we were there too, kind of idea. We experience that by remembering.
3: We are part of that, and they are part of us. And this is part of the worship in the Old Testament, this zakar, this remember. When we went out of Egypt, it seemed like a dream. Waters on the right, waters on the left. And you feel like, wait a minute, it's Song of Korachites. This is time of David. The exile happened 500 years before. You didn't go out of Egypt. But this is part of a national identity. This is who we are. And that history is part of our history and our history is part of that history. And this is the worship the repeating the mighty acts of God, rehearsing them and seeing ourselves part of that. And back to the corporate repentance, seeing ourselves that as a community, we didn't get all things right. And we are part of that. And people have been hurt and damaged in the process. And we can't just disassociate and throw it on somebody else. But we are part of that. And as Christians, we like to complain about the bad things done to us, but we are often blind to the bad things we have done to other people and don't see how we treat other people. So this is very important. And that's why, although Psalm 126 is not in the lesson, I thought it's very important to bring it in and to see the context of the songs of ascent, the pilgrim songs. Psalm 46 everybody knows Psalm 46 so let's just read the beginning of it
4: god is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore we will not fear though the earth should change though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea though its waters roar and foam though the mountains tremble with its tumult
3: okay so if you look under number seven Historically, all of us are aware how much this psalm meant to Martin Luther in his darkest moment when he felt the whole world is against him. Hans Heine, a German writer, called it the Marseillaise of the Reformation, the battle song. Yes, there is safety and peace in Zion. And Martin Luther is not the only one who can testify to that. Once again, if we had more time, could I ask you to share your experience when you found out that God is your refuge and strength and a very present help in time of trouble? And when it seemed that the whole world is falling down and falling apart, that God was there for you. And everybody said, Amen. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Can you remind me what's the name of the river? Can you refresh my geography?
2: I thought about this when I read it last night. And is this the rivers of Babylon that they're sitting beside? What was the river...
3: No, no, no! It's speaking about Jerusalem. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Do you know why you struggle to remember the name? Because Was there is no river in Jerusalem.
2: No river? I thought so. Are that the springs? Were there springs underneath
3: it? Yeah, there are some sources of water, but there is no river. So, what is he talking about? Remember, when David became a king, he came up with this brilliant idea that his new kingdom needs a new capital, and because the two tribes made him a king. He could make one of the cities of Judah or Benjamin his capital city, but you imagine how that would alienate the other ten tribes who did not make him a king and who took time to decide that David is the anointed of the Lord. And so he makes a wise, stately decision. A new kingdom needs a new capital. And there is this city on top of a hill that belongs to some of the remnants of the Canaanites living there that were not able to capture under Joshua. And David makes a promise to his soldiers, whoever gets that city will be the minister of defense in my new government. And let me advise you, every city on a hill depends on the water, because if high hill, you need to have a source of water. So my advice is that you go through the water shaft, and that's the way to the city. And the people in that city are so sure that they are going to withstand any attack on the city. There is no way the city can be captured that they make fun of the army of David. And they say, We put blind in charge on the walls, and lame people are going to defend the walls. And that's enough to defend the city, and no one is going to attack us. To cut the long story short, finally, the soldiers of David captures the city, and because of this taunting, he makes the decision no lame and blind can be part of Jerusalem and the temple. And we will see how Jesus picks that up before we close the lesson. Interestingly, that Psalms will say that God chose Zion as his place. Mm, what was it? It's like when God killed Saul because he didn't ask him. Actually, he asked him, but God did not reply to him and God did not kill Saul. Saul killed himself. So when the Bible says that God chose Zion as his place and the temple, actually, what was the process behind? David chose, but God took that choice as his own. Because if you look under number six, there have been other places where the sanctuary was and God was present before. And so it helps you once again to read the Bible in that context. And so, there is a stream, there is a river in the city of God in Jerusalem. No, there is no river. It just speaks about the restoration. There are two rivers going through the Garden of Eden, and they believe that when they are faithful, God is going to use Zion, God is going to use Jerusalem as a place of restoration, that it will be a new Garden of Eden, and all the nations will come there, and the river will make the city glad. And that's why when you read about New Jerusalem in Revelation, You can be sure what is there, according to Revelation 21, the river of life. And the city is divided by the river of life, and you have the tree of life there, back the restoration of the Garden of Eden. And then comes the text. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help them when the morning dawns. When the nations are in uproar, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. God, the Lord of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Zion will not fall, she is unmovable. Let's read Psalm 125, first two verses.
4: Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time on and forevermore.
3: And everybody said, Amen, hallelujah. So, let's read Jeremiah 7, verses 3 and 4.
4: Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord.
3: Let's read from 8.
4: Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations?
3: Yes, let's read on.
4: Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel.
3: Okay, thank you. And Jeremiah says, you can quote Psalms. God is in her midst. She is not going to fall. Zion is invincible and no magic is going to save you. Nebuchadnezzar is coming and the city is going to fall. And if you don't believe that, have a look at Shiloh, the previous sanctuary, and it's destroyed. It's desolate. That's why they moved it to Jerusalem under David. And that's what happened when Nebuchadnezzar comes and offers a green card to Jeremiah and says, I like your preaching. And you said that Nebuchadnezzar is not such a beast, just surrender to him, and that will save Jerusalem. If you fight against him, you'll destroy Jerusalem. That's what ultimately happened. And Nebuchadnezzar thought that Jeremiah was a good prophet and offered him to take him to Babylon and take care of him, which, of course, he refused because he wants to be with his people. So that gives you a perspective on Psalms. So yes, God is our refuge. God is the source of strength, has proved himself many times in the past a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we shall not fear whatever happens. And though the earth should change, the mountains shake and kingdoms come. Yeah. To quote Christ Object Lessons 333, all his promises and threatenings are all conditional. Everything needs to be taken in the context because once they start presuming on that, and uh, Terry read for us things from Jeremiah, when the Outward expression of their spirituality does not correspond with the inner commitment. God says, I'm watching, I'm watching, and this no amount of quoting the texts and the Bible is going to save Jerusalem. I'm going to make sure you hit your nose, you hit the ground, and Jerusalem is destroyed. What's the lesson, Rita?
12: I think what's coming across to me from what you're saying is that it is so important to understand the context of Each of the Psalms individually, maybe there are some that belong collectively together, but each one individually, we have to understand the context that they were written by an individual or for individual worship or in its broadest context of communication with God, of corporate communication with God, and that we cannot just lift bits out of them and take them for ourselves.
3: And drop them into our time, our culture, completely different context, and think that the plain reading of them applies. Because you have magnificent psalms like 46. And once again, as I said, I could ask any one of you, tell me your experiences with God as your refuge when the world was falling apart, how he proved himself to be a very present help. And all of us have those experiences. And then you have Psalms like 74, which depicts the reality that what happened, how the enemies destroy the temple piece by piece, take it apart. And Psalmist still expresses the faith in God that, yes, I don't understand why is this happening, how can this be happening, but I still believe that you are God about it. And all of us have those experiences. When the world falls apart, when things are happening which you don't understand, that you don't wish for, that you didn't pray for, and you would not wish on your enemy, and they are here happening in your life. And so the book of Psalms has something for different occasions of life. And just as the Hollywood picture of Jesus, by merging all four Gospels into one, does not help, because there are four different pictures that are written for different audiences, you end up with only quoting certain Psalms of orientation, but you disregard the other Psalms of lament and disorientation, yet they are there and they are written and meaningful for other times of life. And this is how it works. Now, imagine how this resonated for centuries when there is no temple, when the Romans are there or when they finally rebuild the temple. But remember the crying because they compare it with the temple of Solomon. They don't think it's magnificent or glorious enough. And the Romans build the Tower of Antonia, a little bit taller than the temple. So to show who is the boss here and how it impacts their spirituality and how they are quoting those scriptures. Malachi 3, if you look under number 9, promises that the Lord will come, return into his temple. So obviously, the temple of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's no evidence that the Lord returned to it. But the prophets say that one day the desire of nations will come to that temple. And for 400 years they wait and they don't see any evidence of that. And let's turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verse 5.
4: Tell the daughter of Zion... Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey.
3: Now remember, the king is not coming on a white horse to deal with those Romans and finally get rid of those Italians, those Romans out of the temple. And now we are going to be the bosses. He's coming on a donkey. What does that mean? That's a judgment on Jerusalem. He enters the Jerusalem. Verse 12, he entered the temple, drew out all those who were selling and buying in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold the dows, which means the bringing of sacrifices stops because everything is in disarray. And by the way, according to John 2, he did this at the beginning of his ministry as a warning. And according to Matthew 21, he does it again for the second time at the end of his ministry. And verse 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. What is a den of robbers? That's the place where you retreat after you get your job done, where you divide the spoil. That's where you feel safe. You don't do it on the tarts as Germans say, on the place where it happened, because that's where it's dangerous. So you just get whatever you want to steal. And they run away into a safe place, and that's where you divide the spoils. This is where you feel safe. And Jesus shows no. Then comes verse 14.
4: The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he cured them.
3: And the son of David say, I hate those blind and lame. No, this son of David welcomes them, and he heals them. Only in Matthew you have this detail. Because Jesus shuts down the temple, and the house of sacrifice now becomes the house of prayer where everybody's welcome, where God's love is even extended to those who have been excluded before, like blind, lame, and eunuchs, they will be part of this new community. Read on in the book of Acts. They can also be baptized, although the church manual says that if you have a piece of equipment missing, you cannot be part of God's people because he is creating a new Zion. So where is that temple in the New Testament? Remember when the house of sacrifice, when they turn the sacrifices into a bribe, Jesus changes the house of sacrifice to house of prayer. According to number 11, Jesus will bring the ultimate sacrifice, but not as a bribe to God, but as an expression of God's unchanging love towards us, how he always loved us. And now you can participate in what God is doing in creating a new type of community. So where is the temple in the New Testament? where Jesus is. And according to Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there the Shekinah lives in their midst. Where was the Shekinah? In the most holy place. But before the exile, it departs never to return until Jesus comes and says, I am the Shekinah. I am the expression of God's presence. The Shekinah is in your midst. And he shuts down the temple and he creates a new, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. Don't you know 1 Corinthians 3.16, that you, plural, are the temple. You are that new Zion, new type of community, the safest place on earth where everybody's welcome, everybody's accepted because God's love is revealed in the most visible, tangible form there. And if that's the truth, then you can understand the words, of the memory text, my soul longs, even faints, for a place like that where it's unconditional acceptance. My heart and my flesh cries out. Is there a place like that in this world where you are always judged by performance? And here's the conclusion. And if your local church is not a place like that, instead of whining and complaining, let's make sure that it becomes a place like that. Because ultimately, it depends on you and me, how we treat one another and how we understand who God is and what he does. Can you see how even the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of Zion, are meaningful? If you put them in the context of the storyline, and see how God moves the story forward. That the ancient temple is now replaced in a new type of community where everybody is welcome, where rich and poor, blind, lame, they all can live together because Jesus is in the business of acceptance and healing everybody. Let's pray. Now, oh, gracious Lord, we are so thankful that in the person of Jesus, God came to dwell in our midst. That you dealt with our sins, and that you want us to be the type of community that people long to experience the presence of unconditional acceptance which you are offering to everybody. We praise you for the love that came our way and the experience that each one of us had individually. But we also pray that we become that type of community in the times and places where each one of us and those listening to this lesson are living so that people can have a place where your glory is revealed, where they are healed emotionally, spiritually, physically and where the good waters of the Garden of Eden are extending the blessings more and more into the community, so that one day when you come, we can all live in New Jerusalem and be healed
5: completely for all eternity. And we thank you that we serve a God like that. In Jesus' name.
12: Amen.